All right, so we get to finish up the end of Romans. Alexander was blessed me to have um, these last three verses. If you notice, it's one large sentence, and this is called the doxology of Romans. So a doxology is basically just a declaration of praise. Um, We sing a song called the doxology at the end of all of our services, and it's it's the idea that, um, and Paul uh, writes one more doxology. It's in Romans 11.36, which is after a large chunk after of, of teaching or um, explanation or of just worship. It's like a, a kind of like, like a final like cap of praise. And so that's the same idea of why we do our doxology, is that at the end of all everything we're doing, our musical worship, the proclaiming of the word, the fellowship by believers, we want to see the doxology as like a, a cap, as a pinnacle of our praise to our Lord. Um, and we can see here in these three verses, Paul kind of circles back from the ver- to the very beginning of Romans. Romans. Um, and it ends just like it began. So these three verses kind of mimic the first chapter. And the first chapter in Romans 1 11 talks about um, being st- strengthened by God. In Romans 1 1, Paul claims he talks about my gospel as it does here. In Romans 1 2, we see the mystery that Paul is referring to, just as he is in this passage. We see in Romans 1 3 that uh, talking about the pinnacle of Jesus. Romans 1 2 refers to scriptures and prophets as verse 26 is. And also in verse 1 and uh, 26, talking about all nations. And Romans 1, 5 refers to that as well. And then ultimately, from the very beginning to the end, we're talking about the gospel. In Romans 1, 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And so you kind of see the richness of the text, of the um, literary terms, the literary uh, techniques that authors are using within the text to uh, to dive deeper into the richness, to show us um, what it is that is trying to be revealed. And so after today, after I get done speaking, um, I hope more than anything else, you see clearly God's glory in the gospel specifically. Uh, So we're going to start out, uh, we're going to go verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word by word, and kind of break down what it means and um, what's happening here. So we see at the very beginning, now to him who is able to strengthen you, uh, so now to him who is able, uh, it's, it's God, first and foremost. Now to him who is able. Paul uses the same language, now to him, in Ephesians 3.20. Um, I'm going to read that passage. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. So not only is it God who strengthens, not only is it God who is giving, but he's giving more graciously, more than we can op- possibly ever imagine. And so what is it that he gives? What is it that he offers? And so it's now to him who's able to strengthen you. And so the, the Greek word here is, it can mean strengthen, but I think a better word for what we're going to talk about today is established, that God can, now to him who is able to establish you. And so we think often um, to establish means to put something um, in place firmly in a, in a location to cause it to be fixed or established in a place. And so I think about the first podium that we were using for a while, and it kind of, it wiggled, and I know it drove me mad, and drove Alexander, and we would um, put pieces of paper underneath it to establish it, to keep it firm. And so that's what it means here. And so my question is, uh, have you ever had the desire to be established? And that's something that we pursue very often in our culture, to be established, whether it's in school, to be established and getting a certain GPA or to finish with a certain degree, um, we hope to be established in the one day being married or starting a family or um, having kids. We hope to be established at home and getting uh, 
making our home feel like home, uh, designing it, taking out walls, putting in wallpaper that we desire, making it established. Um, another thing is work, being established at work and being respected, being known, climbing the ladder. And so this idea of being established is um, quite common. And so 10 times uh, this word is used uh, that Paul uses throughout his letters. Um, 10 out of 11 times it's, it, it's to establish, to be found on solid ground. And so it, who establishes? It's God. Now to him who is able to strengthen us. Now to him who is able to establish us. And then how does he establish? And I think there's, um, there's three ways that he does that. The first one is through good, sound, biblical teaching. Um, so the role of the preacher, the role of whoever is up here proclaiming the word, is to feed the sheep pure food, pure food, that equips and firmly grounds, and that sets men free and keeps them from being blown about every wind of doctrine. So anyone who stands up here at the pulpit, whether it's me, Alexander, one of you guys, or someone else, or any pulpit all across the world, we stand under the authority of Scripture, that, that Scripture's our final authority. And Alexander's used this analogy, that if you get away from the Bible, or I start using a movie to make a point, or if I start taking an analogy too far and I'm getting away from the scripture of God, then I'm losing my authority. Mm-hmm. And Paul here is very clearly that, now to whom is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's through the word of God that we become established. And it's by knowing the word of God that we aren't tossed and fro like the wave. Whenever someone comes up to us and says, oh, the Bible says this, that's in disagreement, that is in shaking our faith and shaking our foundation, we should be people so saturated into the word that we can say, oh, no, it doesn't, and like you're contradicting yourself, or be able to turn to that passage and give an explanation, to give an example, to give an answer for whatever might push against us. And so that's one way to be um, solidified, to be solid, to be established. And Matthew 4, 4 says, uh, man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word of God that the word of God should, um, should just be the thing that we are living. It's, it's from our authority, and it holds us accountable. Um, so establish us in three ways. Uh, so make it part of your life to hear biblical teaching. And in today's age that we live in, there's no excuse. There, there's so many resources, from podcasts to YouTube Um, There's plenty of resources to be saturating yourself, whether just indirectly or background noise, or if you're at work, if you're driving. There's so many ways that you can be pouring into yourself to make sure that good, sound, biblical teaching is a part of your life. And if you want resources, me, Alexander, you can ask basically anyone in this church. Um, As far as I know you guys, as far as I'm aware, you guys are listening to good, sound, biblical teaching. I would love to share some of my favorite pastors, some of the podcasts that I listen to, some of the things that I find most beneficial. But nonetheless, we should, be, uh, we should be saturating. It should be consuming us. And this is exactly uh, what Paul does. And we see it so clearly with Alexander's sermon last week when he talks about all the names. He's talking about all the people that he's being associated with, from church leaders to missionaries to lay people to bivocational. Is that Paul is saturating himself with people who will preach the word to him, who will edify him and build him up. Um, so Paul goes on, according to my 
Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And so why does Paul claim my gospel? It's not that Paul was teaching a different gospel. And some people might even say that Paul had a divine revelation that was contradictory to scripture. And that's, that's why he claimed my gospel. Um, but Paul was so saturated in the scriptures of God that he possessed the gospel because he allowed it to possess his heart. And so the same way, that's how we should be. And if you think about it, Paul was a prodigy in the Jewish faith, that before he was Paul, he was Saul, and he would persecute the church. And by the age of 22, at that time in his life, he would have had three doctorate degrees. He would have had the entire Old Testament memorized. And so all of Scripture, we see Paul being the, a, a great example of what it looks like to be saturated, to know the Word of God. Um, and, and thus, because he knew the Word of God so well, that's why the Lord was able to use him to the extent that he did to write 13 letters of the New Testament. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think we should, we should pursue the example of, of Paul, of, of knowing the word, being in the word, living in the word. And thus, that's when we can be greatly used, but also established in our lives. Um, going on, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. So we know that it is God who establishes us, and he does this through the gospel. And Paul defines it even more with this phrase of, so according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to rev revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. And so he goes into even more detail to explain the gospel. Um, and details bring more glory. If, so Justin and I work together. If I told our boss Brad that Justin got this section of hardwood laid, it's like, okay, that gives Justin the glory and that he gets the credit he deserves. But if I go into more detail saying, oh, you should have saw how Justin handled these details of the way that he made this board fit into this location. If I explain more details as to what Justin did, it brings him more glory and honor. Mm -hmm. So the same way that is what Paul's doing here to expound upon the gospel so that God may receive more glory as to what he was doing. Uh, so the mystery, this mystery Paul uses 20 out of 27 times in the New Testament. Um, and if you would turn with me to Colossians 1.24, there's the two Corinthians, and then there's uh, Galatians, Ephesians, um, Philippians, and then Colossians. A good way to remember this is go eat pork chops. And I was going to make a joke, unless you're Tara and Alexander, go eat popcorn, but neither one of them are here now, so... <laughs> So we'll hear on, a, on, the, on the podcast, I suppose. <laughs> so Colossians 1, 24, Paul's going to give us a more in-depth understanding as to what this mystery is, or who is this mystery. Um, reading verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to know how great among the Gentiles are the riches of glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery, as Paul says, the mystery hidden for ages, to them God chose to make how great among the Gentiles are, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
And so the, the hope, the, the mystery is Christ, the, the personhood, the embodiment of Christ, that Jesus being fully God, being fully man, lived a perfect sinless life, that he died on a, on a cross in, in atonement for our sins in our place. On the third day, he was resurrected, conquering the grave, conquering death. And at Pentecost, the, his Holy Spirit was poured out. The Holy Spirit came just as he said he would. And so this is the mystery that, that Jesus would come and do what he did. Because let's not forget in the Old Testament, the Jews were expecting a Messiah, but had no idea that Jesus would be who he was and do what he did. And completely miss it. But nonetheless, it, it's the same message, this Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, that Paul has been preaching all throughout Romans. In Romans 1 and 2, we see the indicting of all mankind, that all mankind is found guilty, both the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew, by scriptures, by the Gentile, it was written on their heart. In Romans 3, 4, we have sola fide, which is a, by faith alone, um, that our works actually condemn us, and it's only by putting faith alone in Christ that we could possibly be saved. In Romans 5 and 6, we, are, we die in Adam, just as Christ died, we die in Adam and we are given a new life just as Jesus resurrected from the grave. We also are resurrected. Um, we're also free from the dominion of sin that no longer are we slaves to sinfulness, but now we can be slaves to righteousness. We have new life. Romans 7 8 is with the spirit. We are free from condemnation. We are now free to walk um, in freedom and obedience to the Lord. And Romans 9 shows us that before the foundations of the world, this was the Lord's plan all along. That this means, this path of salvation, the sending of Jesus, the, his, his death, resurrection, um, was all part of the plan of God. And so this is what Paul's been teaching this entire time. And theology was not the heart of Paul's letter, the, the book of Romans. The, the heart of Paul's letter was Jesus through and through. Um, and so why was this a mystery? Why was the, the character, the personhood of Jesus a mystery? We know from 1 Peter 1.12 that even angels long to look into the mystery of the gospel, to understand it and to know what would happen. And if you think about it, if angels don't even know the mystery and what Jesus, who Jesus was and what he was going to do, that means also Satan and demons aren't, weren't aware of it either. And so if you think about in the Gospels, the role that Satan played with Judas in the killing and the betrayal of Jesus, if Satan knew he was actually working all along with God's plan for salvation, you wouldn't think he would go along with it. And so that's one um, good reason as to why um, it was hidden, that not even angels were aware of what Jesus was going to do. Um, now, has it actually been completely hidden this entire time? Um, and because it says, that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed, and through the prophet, prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, if you want to turn there with me real quick, we see uh, the God talking with Abraham. And the Abrahamic covenant promise that he made um, is being played out before our eyes. So again, my question is, has, it, has the mystery of Christ actually been hidden all this time? And so reading in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, 
And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So through the promise of Abraham and of his descendants as fulfilled in Christ and the purchasing, the crafting in, the bringing in of Gentiles. And I don't want to assume anything. Um, if you don't know what a Gentile is, it, it's um, awakening. I, I've been very blessed to go to Israel and listen to a Jewish rabbi and he called us to our face like, you are a Gentile. And I, um, I was also very blessed to do some prison ministry I, I remember I came one time, I had this entire sermon and Bible study laid out. I couldn't wait to get into it. And I started talking about, I think I was in Ephesians, something like that. But the, the guys who were listening had no idea what a Gentile was. And so there's the Jewish people and then everyone else is Gentiles. So we would all be considered Gentiles. And so when you think about, I will bless those who bless you and who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Most people understand that the Jewish people were God's covenant people, and thus with Jesus, the opening up of the covenant, Gentiles are crafted in. So we are benefits, we benefit from what the Lord has done. Um, so this is one um, example of the mystery kind of um, being revealed. Another passage is Exodus 19, 5 through 6. And I'll read that real quick. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so this idea in verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that just as Jesus is the great high priest, the great intercessor who mediates on our behalf, to God, the Israelites, the, the Jewish nation, were the high priests that would mediate on the behalf of the world to God. And so here, between this and Genesis, um, we have examples of the mystery slowly being revealed. And there's, there's countless other examples from Jeremiah and Isaiah, Ezekiel. There's one in Hosea, which we'll be in starting next week. Um, so nonetheless, we see the prophetic writings being revealed, the, this mystery and Romans 10, 11-13 reads this, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this leads me into the second way that the Lord establishes us, that puts, he puts us on firm ground. And that is the connection with other believers. That in Christ, there is no hierarchy. There is no super Christian or non-Christian. Um, it goes on in scripture to talk about there's rich, being rich or poor, being free or slave, being Jew or Greek. We are all the same in Christ. In the same way, just because I'm up here on a pulpit doesn't mean I'm any better than you or I'm, I'm a greater super-Christian than what you may be. Um, we are all the same. And so that's why the, the community of believers, to be established, that's why we, one of our core values is radical biblical fellowship. That biblically, we want to cultivate and create a community that is radically different from the world. 
And that's why we do huge Thanksgiving meals together. That's why we do small group on Thursdays. That's why we have men and women's accountability group. It's because we want to cultivate um, this connection with other believers. Because at the end of the day, you can be a Christian by yourself, but it's only, you'll always be drifting away from the Lord. You'll always be, you'll never be fully growing or, um, I don't want to say your full potential, but you, it is within the, the means that the Lord has created is that within the body of believers, that's where we grow the strongest. That is when the, the foundation is the most thickly poured or laid. And this is how the Lord has um, ordained it. And that, that's exactly what, you know, this church is. Like, we're just full of sinners, you know. If, if you're here today and you suck, like, welcome. You're right where you need to be. <laughs> And so God establishes us because the mystery of Christ has purchased us, making us one with him. And this doesn't just go for us who are here in this room. This doesn't just go for the Christians in America. This goes to all nations. As it says, according to Revelation mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. And so nations isn't, you know, when we think of nations, we think of countries. But a more, um, a better explanation, better idea of what it means here by nations is people groups. Um, and so there's many different people groups. But in the world today, people speculate there are 2.9 billion people, 6,000 unreached people groups. And to be considered an unreached people group means that there has to be less than 2% of your population that are that are Christians. Mm -hmm. And so 2.9 billion people, 6,000 unreached people groups who people say haven't even heard the name of Jesus. They don't even have any idea. And so it's clearly that the mystery, the mystery that Christ is the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ has been brought about so that all people of all nations, all people groups can be purchased. And that the greatest way the Lord establishes us is through the preaching of the word the connection with other believers, so that we may be able to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel and bring all nations under the banner of Christ. Um, so these are just a few of the resources upon which um, the Lord has tools, if you would, weapons if, that the Lord has given us in order to evangelize, to reach. Um, and I can't stress this enough again, and so I'm going to. Uh, this is a great litmus test. What um, this is a great lit litmus test, and let's not forget what a litmus test is. It's to test the acid in something, what uh, to test the danger or harmful substance or or context. And so the ultimate test of any Christian message is: Does it proclaim the mystery that any Sunday morning gathering you go to, any sermon that you hear? What is it proclaiming? What is it teaching? And the mystery of God, being the person heard of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, should always be the, the point of the message, should always be leading and guiding and directing to the gospel. Because the gospel is the thing that consumes every page of this book. The gospel is the pinnacle of, of God's creation, of his history of salvation. And that's why we gather. That's why we sing the songs we do, and why we do the things we do in community is for the sake of the gospel. 
Um, going on to the next part, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. And so eternal, um, another synonym word for this is changeless, that God is changeless, that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Um, so a heresy is anything that contradicts orthodox Christian doctrine. And a, a heresy that was founded in 144 AD, so not even 100 years after Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, is a heresy called Marcionism. And Marcionism says that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. And this is a belief that is rather common in today's society. You know, I, I can point to a couple pastors who don't, maybe not say this directly, but indirectly are hinting at this and leaning this way. Um, so the eternal God, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that we believe that just it was God's plan, the mystery for the foundations of the world to bring about Christ. And he did that through the Old Testament into the New Testament. And so what did he bring about? But it's now been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. And so this is um, my third point of how the Lord uh, plants our foundation, how he establishes us. He does it through the proclaiming, the proclamation of the gospel through biblical sound teaching. Okay, <laughs> I was like, uh-oh, I didn't see your leave. Um, Second, through the community, the body of believers, our connection, our oneness found in Christ. And the third one is through uh, the obedience of faith. And so I have three questions. What is obedience? What is faith? And what, in, what is and how do you know if you have obedience of faith? Um, so obedience is the idea that you are hearing under, that you listen from a subordinate position in which compliance in what's said is expected. That we are obedient to what God's asked us to do. If God asks us to assume that it is expected that we will be compliant, that we will do as he says. Um, faith is, is trust. Um, faith, belief have a different connotations, different understanding, different vocabulary um, in today's age, but the best way is, is tr to understand this is trust. There's a missionary named John Patton, and he was a missionary to the South Sea Islanders. And he was struggling. He was interpreting um, the Bible and translating it into the um, South Sea Islanders' native language. And he was struggling to find a word for faith. And so one day he was in the hut of some of the natives and talking with them and engaging in conversation. And one of the natives walked in, sat down, and he said, uh, it's so good to rest my whole weight in this chair. And that's when he knew that he had a word to, to translate faith. And so he said, faith is resting your whole weight on God. So obedience is obeying the, the expectation that we will listen and we'll do as was asked. And faith is resting our whole weight on God. And so thus, obedience of faith, um, it comes from the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the desire as well as the power to obey. Um, anyone can do what scripture asks anyone yeah anyone can do it but it's only through the holy spirit that we get the desire and the and we get the power to be able to actually accomplish what is asked from us thomas watson who is a great puritan reformer um says this 
Faith makes God ours. Other graces make us like Christ. Faith makes us one with him. And this faith is known by its virtue. Precious faith has virtue in it. It quickens and it enables. It puts worth into our services. And so how do we know if we have this um, obedience of faith? First uh, John 3 lays out a, a great picture of what it looks like to walk in obedience to the Lord. I'll read it real quick. Little children, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this is evident who are the children of God. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So we see that obedience is a fruit of the Spirit. That obedience is an um, example of a, a virtue, a, a prime indicator that someone has the Holy Spirit, that he has the desire, and that he is walking in obedience, pursuing what is of the Lord. And again, obedience, it's obedience, not perfection. Um, the Lord never, the Lord wants us to pursue perfection, but obedience doesn't have to be perfect. But nonetheless, I should be able to look at your life and as best as I could, your thoughts, your heart posture, your actions, your choice of words. And it should be drawing towards God. It should be in an uphill spiral towards God. Um, and that, that's a great indicator as to faith of obedience. Um, a, a super simple poem um, that I found is, Nothing before, nothing behind. The steps of faith fall on the seeming void and find the rock beneath. Obedience of faith. There's this old heresy called antinomianism. It's the idea that you can be saved and then how you live your life doesn't matter. That once you have saving faith, there is nothing that you need to do afterwards. And I would affirm that, and since there's nothing you need to do, but rather, if you truly have saving faith, there should be real examples of a, of a heart change, of being just as Christ was died on the cross and laid to be buried and was resurrected, your life should reflect that transition of being put to death, being brought to life. Um, I found a study, which was really interesting. It says that Matthew 7, 1 has become more popular than John 3, 16. Um, 3, 16 being for God so loved the world that he gives only, his one and only son. Matthew 7, 1 is do not judge or you too should be judged. And this seems to be a much more um, common verse. And so anyone can say or try to do something, but genuine real faith comes only from the Lord. And so there's a big difference in being judgmental and holding someone accountable. If someone claims to be a believer, if someone claims to be, be pursuing the Lord and is living in a, a sinful way, um, found in sin, we have an obligation as, as a body of believers, as a brother and sister in Christ, to call that person out. But it's not that we're, when the church gets, when the church gets a bad rap of being hip, hypocr- hypocr- hypocritical, there it is. I'm very nervous, if you can't tell. <laughs> when the church gets hypocritical, or get that at the, the bad rap of hypocrisy, 
is because we call people out and we put ourselves on a pedestal. We make it seem like we are better and that they are sinners. The reality is, like I said, if you suck, welcome. Because we all suck and we all need Jesus. And so we have every right, we have an obligation to call the person out in their sin and bring them back to the Lord in repentance and pursuing the Lord. That we're all in the same sinking boat and say, like, look, I suck just as much as you do, but let's, uh, let us both pursue the Lord. Let us both run after the Lord because that's exactly, um, that's exactly what we need. And so the obedience of faith comes from the Lord. It's the Holy Spirit who not only gives us the desire to live properly, to make the right choices, to live our lives that reflect God, but he also gives us the power to, the obedience of faith. That the, it's called the fruits of the Spirit for a reason. You know, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. It's not fruit of man. It's not we accept Jesus and then we produce those fruit. It's that those things become relevant and real in our lives once the Holy Spirit has placed itself in our lives. And so we can rest assuredly that what Scripture teaches, what God has began, a good work in us, you'll see it through to completion. And so how the Lord establishes us is firstly through the proclamation, the preaching of his word, biblical sound teaching, the body, the community of believers that we are one in Christ. And thirdly, because he, he promises that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. He is the author, not only the author of our faith, faith, but also the perfecter of our faith. Uh, moving on, verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Obviously, to be wise, we believe that God is omniscient, all-knowing, but how I understand, how I see this verse, talking about if the doxology is the pinnacle, talking about the gospel, reflecting on the gospel, I see this verse referring to the wise God as that in all of human history, there has never been a belief system. There's never been a religion like Christianity. In fact, no other religion comes close to touching it. And I even say specifically the, the beliefs, the understanding of the reformers. Because what we teach and what we believe and what we believe the Bible teaches is that it's faith alone that saves us. It's faith alone, nothing else. All other religions will either teach it's completely works or it's faith plus works equals salvation. Never in human history has there been any evidence, any proof that any other religion, any other belief system taught otherwise. And that is why I believe that he is the wise God. Because all, all, like I said, all other religions are the same. Faith plus works. But we can rest that it's not any other work. It's faith alone. And that's why, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Because if it's God who saves us, if it's God who um, sustains us, if it's God who redeems us, then God gets all the glory. We deserve and we receive no glory whatsoever for our salvation, for our righteousness, for our sanctification, for our glorification. It's all glory forevermore to the only wise God. Can't read my handwriting. 
So how does Paul end this letter? End this letter other than with amen, which is an agreement. Amen is I agree, I affirm this. So if you want to get some more amens from the audience while preaching, Alexander and I will greatly enjoy that. Um, so the way he ends it is through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. And these three words are seen throughout the entire book of Romans. So much so that I'm going to read every single one of them, just so you guys get the point. In Romans 1.5, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom he... And also, I hope you listen and recognize what we get through Jesus Christ. So Romans 1.5, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom he had received grace and apostleship. This is Paul talking about himself. Paul thanks the Lord. Romans 1.8, thank God through Jesus Christ. Romans 2.16, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1, we hope peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.2. Through Christ also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Romans 5.9, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him because we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And for this reason, Romans 5.10, we can now exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Romans 5.17, we will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Romans 5.21, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 7.25, Paul thanks God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8.37, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So this through Jesus Christ is um, a powerful thing that we see throughout the book of Romans. And it also reflects that Christianity is a through relationship. That Christ is our through, our through man, if you would. On one hand, he has lived the lives that we have. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like for us to go through, to go through betrayal, to go through heartbreak, to go through so many of the trials, suffering, hardships that we face. On the other hand, he knows what it's like to be a to talk with, to speak, to intercede, to plead on our behalf to a holy God. And the only way we find reconciliation, the only way that we can possibly speak or interact or talk with a holy God is through Christ. And so my, my through line as to the three ways that the Lord establishes us is that it goes like this. Um, so through, in my mind, is an experience. You know, you go through things. You go through a tunnel and you experience the darkness, the, the quietness of a tunnel. Uh, you go through a trial. You feel the hardship. You feel the pressure. You feel the overwhelming, the anxiety. You feel everything. You go through a defense to score, to score a touchdown. You feel the, the physical pressure, the fear of being tackled, of being hurt. And so just Christianity is a, is a through relationship. And so my question is, have you experienced the gospel and are you experiencing Christ more importantly? And I'm not just talking about a one-time moment when you gave your life to the Lord and you experienced the presence of the Lord on yourself. I'm not talking about a church high when you leave church camp and for three weeks you feel great and then it goes away. I'm not talking about on Sunday nights after our preaching or in the musical worship, you feel empowered, you feel encouraged, and then it goes away the next day. I'm talking about, are you, do you experience God daily? 
in your lives, in your walk. Jonathan Edwards, who is arguably one of the greatest theologians to ever live, and fun fact, Alexander's not here. He's the grandfather to Aaron, Aaron Burr in Hamilton, if you didn't know that. He uses this analogy of honey. He talks about how one, a person can know what honey is. It can, he can tell you everything that's in honey. He can tell you what honey looks like, what it feels like, the texture of it, whatnot. But there's a difference in someone who knows everything about honey and someone who's tasted honey and knows what the sweetness and the, the sugar rush and the, how pleasant it is to the tongue. There's a big difference in knowing and experiencing. Everything that I've stated, you can know. You can know the gospel. You can know biblical sound teaching. You can know what it's like to be in a body of believers, that you need to be in a body of believers. You can know that God is the author and perfecter of our salvation. But what Christ desires and what, what Christ has orchestrated is that it's an experimental relationship where you experience him daily. Because after all, even demons know the gospel and know all the things of the Lord, but still don't walk um, in experiencing the Lord. And so experiencing Jesus is not only what draws us to his word in the church, but what keeps us there and makes us thirst for more. Um, this is why Jesus says that he is the well that never runs dry. Because every other well this world has to offer, even good things such as family, work, um, community, are wells that will run dry. But we thirst and we long for more because that is how we are made. Um, was the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Um, John Piper says that we are most satisfied when God is most glorified. It's all for the glory of God. And the gospel is the means through which the Lord has ordained to purchase us, to bring us into relationship with him in order to establish us, to put us on foundation. And so, well, I hope you pray about and reflect on after this is how much you experience the Lord. How can you experience the Lord more through biblical teaching, through community, the body of believers, and through just trusting and faith in him and what he says. So, would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we thank you so much for who you are, Lord. King Jesus, I thank you that you reign as the King of kings and Lord of lords even now. That, Lord, there are holes in your hands and your feet, Lord, in remembrance of what it is that you have done, Lord. The life that you lived, the death that you died, and the grave that is now left empty because of you, God. I thank you, Lord, that you invite us, Lord. You, you offer salvation to all men, Lord. You do not desire to see anyone cease God. And Lord, this gospel, this, this beautiful message, this reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God, you have given to us, Lord, but also um, you have charged us with God for this gospel to consume us, to take us over, God, to to run in to overfill into every aspect of our lives, God, from our families to our workplaces to 
uh, our communities that we find ourselves in, Lord, to the very mission that we are pursuing and everything that we do, God. Uh, Lord, we recognize it's all from you and it's all for you, Lord. And so, Lord, I just pray that you be so gracious to continue to pour your presence out upon us, God, especially now as we enter in musical worship, as we, just as the doxology is, as the, as the cap of praise, God, I, I pray that that's what this would be, um, glorifying you, God, and you alone, the only one who's worthy of all glory forevermore, Lord. So I pray that our worship would be um, pleasing and, and pleasant in your sight, God. In your holy name, I ask and pray all these things. Amen.